We spend far too much time worried about what makes us different than the next person or better than the next person and not enough time thinking about why we should respect the next person. We all have a story, an overarching theme that runs through our lives and makes us who we are. The problem is, we think that since each of our stories is different, there's not a lot of perceived value or shared struggle. But we have far more in common than we can imagine, and what motivates one person can certainly help us as well. The Third Lab Podcast is about understanding, respecting, and appreciating the struggle that it takes to overcome immeasurable odds in order to reach your destiny. Join me as I interview and bond with some of the most inspiring and incredible people, diving into their why to get a full understanding of their being. Without each other, we have nothing. So let's go on this adventure together and take on the future with open minds and open hearts. Welcome to the Third Lap Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Third Lap Podcast. Today, I have the opportunity to connect with Dijanae Talley, who's a writer, Black woman, public scholar, and abolitionist. Extremely excited, as always, mm-hmm. about my conversation today. And I, I look forward to learning more about Dijanae and the passion for the work she, that she does. So Dijanae, what's going on? How are you? Hey, what's up? Thank you. Um, so happy um, that you reached out. So honored to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm good. I'm excited. Absolutely. And so uh, how I know Dijanae, so actually I know Dijanae through my wife. Uh, my wife works with Dijanae and the two uh, have been doing some really cool work with like teens uh, at Health Promotion Council. And so my wife, after like one of the meetings, initially meeting Dijanae was like, hey, Malcolm, like this is a really dope person. Like you got to connect with her. <laughs> um, and then when I started the podcast, she was like, you have to connect with her for the podcast. So uh, I was excited that you were open to uh, coming on the show and, and talking about yourself and your journey. Um, and again, just really allowing people to just dig into who you are as a person and, and as a human being. Um, but yeah, anything you want to add about how we know each other? Uh, yeah, I think we have a few mutual friends. Was, was Kyle on your show before? Yeah, right? yep, Kyle, yeah. Yep, Kyle the conductor. What up, Kyle? So you, so you real connected. <laughs> we were connected <laughs> in more than one way. But yeah, Allison, <laughs> Allison was a saving grace when I met her at work. I was like, this place is interesting. <laughs> no, I, Allison connected me to Kyle. So Allison is really the conductor. Oh. <laughs> She's the connector here because you she did. goes all these places and meets people and like, Malcolm, you got to connect with this person. She connected <laughs> me with Steve and he connected me with So I, I constantly thank Allison for being that connective tissue for me, especially yeah. for the show. Um, but yeah, she uh, she has nothing but great things to say about you and has always spoke your, the, the highest of you um, every time you've come up. So again, yeah, excited to talk to you that. today. That's amazing. I really appreciate that. Thank of you. Of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Shout outs to Allison. What up, babe? Um, and so, yeah, just the rep your hood section. So, Dijanae, where are you from? I am from New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. Uh, born and raised. It's a city that not many people know. Um, but if you live in the Northeast, you know it. It's weird because it's like, I've heard so many people say they have black people in Connecticut. Like, yeah, they got black people in Connecticut. Bridgeport, all over Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I grew up in this weird situation where I was in this very like, you know, urban city. Yeah. Um, not to have to be able to jump from New York. My mom's from the Bronx. Nice. Um, and but with one of the most elite educational institutions in the world, yeah. like as my backyard, it was just really weird. Yale University, for those who don't know, is in New Haven, Connecticut. So, you know, growing up 
approximate to like extreme poverty and also like extreme prestige. Like it was just, it was interesting. So that's where I'm from. I've been in Philly for five years. I love Philly. I consider it a second home. I've always lived in North. So I guess I gotta, <laughs> I guess I gotta shut up North a little bit. Um, but I do work all over the city. So I just feel like, you know, a lot of neighborhoods are my home here. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you said people hadn't heard of New Haven, I was like surprised. I'm like, wait, what? Like, right. People? But I, I guess when you get away from like the Northeast, um, yeah, that's like the New is. England area, then yeah, I could see that. No, um, once you leave New England, it's like the only thing people know about Connecticut is UConn. And I'm like, no. all right, y'all. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, pizza, like <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, and glad that you're enjoying yourself in Philly. You know, this is my home, such a dope city. I'm always talking to people about Philadelphia and relocating here and, and finding themselves career-wise and family-wise. Um, I think it's such a slept-on city that has so much potential. So, so glad that you're finding this as a second home. So slept on. It's like, it's the perfect size. Yep. It's not overwhelming. It's still got like neighborhood feels. You still yep. get suburbs. You just, you can get everything you want in a big city without all the chaos, I think. Right, and the high prices in New York City, because <laughs> those prices, those that prices part. are back breaking, man. <laughs> you can't sustain that if you're not making like a half mil a year, and right. we're not making that. So, uh, right. especially in public service work, so you know, it's a great city to be in. Um, and again, Dijanae, I'm glad that you're enjoying it. And so, you know, I'm excited now to really just jump into sort of like the the meat of the podcast, which is really about you. Um, and giving you the opportunity to talk about yourself and your journey to where you are. And so Dijanae, yeah, like start us off, you know, where would you say your your story began um, on your ascent to where you are currently? I mean, I got, I got to take it home. Like it really started in New Haven. I think like just how I introduced my hometown and how I experienced it, it, it was just bizarre. Um, and I think many people have this experience, um, but it's just a matter of what you do with it, right? And so Growing up around Yale, you know, my grandmother worked at the university, my mom worked at the hospital and like having this weird relationship with an institution that kind of locked the neighborhood, kind of very much what Temple does in North Philly. Like you, you kind of, you impose yourself on your surroundings and like you make people, you erase people and you make them invisible. And, you know, it was just this weird thing where, you know, my friends growing up didn't get to do a lot of things. They, you know, police harassed them and um, I went to, my mom sent me to school in the suburbs. It's probably, I hope she never goes to jail for this, but <laughs> my mom used somebody's address to send me to school that I wasn't supposed to go to. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I had friends by day who were like, had access to resources and summer camp and sports and lacrosse and all these things. And then I go home and we sit on the porch, you know what I'm saying? And like, you know, Yale students are walking by and we got Yale police. And we also got like the New Haven police that caters to the Yale students and all those things. And so watching you know, watching Yale students get away with things that my friends were getting arrested for, right, on the same block. I was like, no, nah, that's not right. You know what I'm saying? And that's when I really started to interrogate the criminal justice system as this thing, this catch-all thing that catches everybody. Like, you know, people, mental health, um, poverty, like it's literally all the shit rolls downhill and it all ends up in our incarceration system. And so I really wanted to like pick that apart. And I spent, you know, the next 10 or 15 years really figuring out what that meant. Um, and really trying to figure out what I could do about it. And so um, I ended up going the school route. I, I'll let you know what the verdict is on that. Um, I'm in 23rd grade, <laughs> getting a PhD in criminal justice after four years of undergrad, two years of a master's degree. And now I'm in my fifth year in my PhD program. Oh, child. Um, <laughs> it's 
just like a kid. But no, I've, I've really just spent the last 10 years just trying to figure it out. I think so many things that happen in the criminal justice system are are hidden from the public. And so I've just been peeling back those layers for the last 10 years, working with at-risk at youth, working with gun-carrying young people, working with like in prisons with folks, people who are coming out of prison and, you know, with city government and how they deal with that or what they decide is a problem, what they decide isn't a problem. It's just, I've just been trying to figure out the inner workings of that. And it's, it's you never done learning. Um, I'm still finding out stuff about how we incarcerate people every day and it's really messed up. So that's kind of how I got here. It was just like, really being passionate about the things that I felt were wrong that I, that I was witnessing around me and really wanting to, you know, have all the knowledge that I, I could have about it so that I could, you know, work with other people who were like-minded and interested in the same thing to just, to begin to dismantle it, I think. And that's why I'm a prison abolitionist. I think prisons are the most inhumane. I don't even understand it. <laughs> like I couldn't even begin to, 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 Tell you that I've tried to make sense of prison a million times over, and it just does not make sense to me. Um, it has to me, it just has no no value. Um, so, yeah, that's why that's where I'm at. Yeah, I uh, I ordered a book from Angela Davis that she wrote back in like the '70s about abolishing prison, and so that's you know, classic. <laughs> yeah, it's a classic, and you're digging into the work that I see myself really sort of steering my career in that direction um, over the next couple of years because of the same. The, the same experience, um, but on the school side. So, you know, I see how the prison industrial complex and like policing affects our kids' ability to learn. Um, and you can have the perfect school, but as soon as those kids leave, they're still victimized by the systems around them outside. And so, you know, we have to work diligently at the things that we see are injustices and, and offset them the best we can. And so I appreciate the work that you're doing, Dijanae, and I appreciate the fact they are in 23rd grade and still pushing on and still getting <laughs> the job done um, because, you know, the work that you do is impactful um, and is needed, especially in a city like Philadelphia, where you see such a large uh, uh, rate of, of imprisonment, but also the, uh, the gun violence here um, is something that I think gets swept under the rug pretty uh, diligently. I mean, you can look at the numbers and, and, you know, last year the numbers were ridiculous, but, you know, when people think of like gun violence, Philadelphia isn't always the top city that folks think of. Um, and so Dijanae, I would love to hear, what are some of the discoveries that you've uh, come across? What are some of the things that you've learned and found out about the prison industrial complex that's really led you down this pathway of, of abolish it um, and, and let's find something that works? Yeah, I think there's two things when it comes to prisons that irks me the most. Number one is that we use prison to, it's like when all of our institutions fail, those those folks who, who it fails end up in prison. Like, and instead of looking at that as a system failure, right? We look at that as an individual failure. We don't ask ourselves about what's wrong with our schools what's wrong with like our values? What's wrong with the way that we, we, we conduct business in a, in a number of areas that people end up in prison, right? Um, and I think the second, and I'll get back to it in a second, but I think also the second thing with prisons that irks me, maybe equally, I don't know, when you're talking about prisons, it's like, how do you, how do you rank it? Like, how do you rank how many times and how many things piss right. me off about it's like, it? It's like all of it, right? <laughs> like every, every piece of it is, is absolutely irritated for sure. Oh gosh. It, it's, it, it's arbitrary, like for the most part. So like, I think the like what people don't understand about crime, right? Is that most of it 
we've made decisions that it's a crime, right? And we we arbitrarily assign, you know, what kind of harm each crime causes. So I'm not talking about murder. I'm not talking about the ones where we know that that's just that's just in that's just wrong. Like hurting somebody is wrong. Certain things are wrong. But like criminalizing poverty in a number, you know what I'm like that. That's a lot of what we're like we see. And how do you decide that someone stealing anything, like let's say it's survival or it's anything, is any different from like what we see capitalism do to people? You know what I'm saying? Like it's like how do you how do you discern? And for me, it's race. For me, it's poverty. For me, it's all these other things that we don't have a conversation about. I do this exercise whenever I start talking to young people about criminal justice, right? And this this kind of relates back to the gun violence thing. Is like it's really hard for communities that are the most impacted by gun violence and also the most impacted by the criminal justice system broadly to make sense of their desire for freedom um, from the criminal justice system for their loved ones, for themselves or whatever, but also the only tool that they can think of when they think about murder is calling the police and having a criminal justice system that does that work, right? And so I do this exercise with young people and I'm like, all right, I, I describe a crime. I say, this person did, I don't know, I, I make up some scenario and I tell everyone, I want you to write on a piece of paper how much time, if any time at all, this person should do in prison. And it's never the same. Some people say probation, some people say 50 years for whatever it is. Like it could be murder, it could be assault, it could be anything. And people have different for different you know responses to how much time that person um, should do. And if you can't, if you don't have consensus on that sort of thing, how can you how do you how do you make laws that impact people's entire entire lives based on on these numbers like what is seven years for robbery you know like what is what are what are these numbers and what do they mean and so you know i don't think that prison serves i don't think everybody agrees what the purpose of prison is um i don't i also don't think we provide people with the humanity that is required like 95 percent of people get out of prison no matter what they do 95 of percent of people who go into prison eventually come out and so when you put somebody in a box and, and, and <laughs> deprive them of everything, you know, every bit of humanity that you could possibly deprive them of and then put them back out in the world and say, do better. <laughs> like, it's just like, how backhanded is that? You set them up. It's actually disrespectful. It's actually like, it, it's laughable almost, but it, it's very serious because that's what we do. And so when you think about gun violence, when you think about all the petty crimes that sometimes escalate to people committing violent crime that's those are the conditions that you're putting them in there under and expecting them to come out better people and that's not serving communities where crime is high that's not serving communities where most of these people are going back to um so to me it just it's, it's a lot of money for nothing it's a lot of money for nothing when you really could be investing it on the front end you can be investing it in schools you can be investing it in not having food desert <laughs> all over the city you can invest it in people having adequate mental health care um, and people not, you know, you're not putting beer stores and selling tobacco on every corner so people could cope. I'm not saying you can't get your smoking your drink on, but a lot of people cope with that stuff because they don't have the other things that they need. So I just think that prisons are ridiculous. And, you know, by all means, we, we can we can come up with a way where we have to deal with people who really do harm. But the, the fact is most people who go to prison are not like, I don't know, they're just not. Think about everybody sitting there right now, all these people who got locked up for drug offenses. Um, even violent offenders, like you can't, you can't incarcerate your way out of violence, no matter what you do, you just can't, there's no, there's no way to do it. 
So you have to really start thinking about how are we gonna how are we gonna address violence in a way that doesn't rely on incarceration. Um, and I think that that's the key to our, besides you know gun policy or whatever. I think really thinking about violence is like a public health issue and people resorting to violence because of other things that you know have to do with our institutions failing them. That's how you really get at it. You have to you have to the way that I describe it is like if I can't get rid of the gun, I can manipulate and I can play around with and I can impact a person's decision to pick it up. And all folks' decisions to pick up a gun is often tied to economics, anger, desperation, hopelessness, and just not having, you know what I'm saying? So that's the angle I come at it from. Um, yeah, just prisons are just not it for that. You're listening to the Third Lap Podcast with Mal Davis. Yeah. Yo, talk that talk, Dijanae, man. That's that's what I like to hear is is just the blunt, honest truth. Um, and around the point of like the effectiveness of prison. So I always talk about this, right? So certain gangs, you got to go to prison to get like jumped in, right? Mm-hmm. So how's prison working when it's a means of initiation? Like that's, those two things do not equal out, right? Like you can't tell me that- It's a criminogenic thing. Right, the worst like, thing you could do for a prison is put them in prison. <laughs> if you right. want them to stop, like it's like, you're gonna, right. t- you're gonna send them to the university of crime and violence. That's- what they in there like gladiators man locked in literally there's and a show called world's toughest prisons where there's literally oh, this prison and i love that show i don't know why it's the most My honest goodness. prison show i've seen yeah because it doesn't yeah. show it as all bad and it shows the humanity right. of people um around the world really and there's a prison right. where literally you have to be gang involved in the prison to survive yeah there. It was yo one of them like south or central american prisons i was watching it with my mans a couple of years ago and I'm looking at this prison. I'm like, I, I don't remember what country it was, but I was like, I'm never going to this country because God <laughs> forbid something happens and I end up in a prison system. Yeah. I'm done. Malcolm will never be heard from again. Like these dudes, like it was like old school Greece gladiator action in there, man. And wow. yeah, it's, you know, to your point, how are you? 95% of them get out, right? Like mm-hmm. they've had to, they've had to commit atrocious acts inside a prison. Um, and then get released. And on that back end, you know, you've already mentioned that a lot of times folks are going back to where they came from, they're coming out with no resources. When you take away a person's ability to become educated, right, behind bars, when you take away their ability to at least get an associate's degree, a GED, anything, yeah. how do you claim that you're, you're, you're rehabilitating this person? Where's the rehabilitation aspect of this process? Um, because I really don't see it. I see it's like you said, criminalizing poverty. Um, laws are being enacted by people that aren't affected by the poverty in the first place. So they really don't care what happens. So between the prisons and the police, they cutting us on both sides. Um, and then we get last access to all the resources. So we have no mental health professionals realistically that could offset this stuff. Um, and so like you said, man, you know, it's a vicious cycle where we, when you analyze it, it makes sense why you should want to break it down and, and morph into something that's more productive, but there's no money in that for the people that have been making money for years and years right. and years in this process. Um, and so I would love to hear, Dijanae, you know, what, in regards to rehabilitation, because uh, with you having studied this and, and focused so much of your time and energy on it, like you said, there's always going to be like that violent contingent that ha- there has to be some sort of something in place for them, but such a small percentage, right, of the population. 
in your opinion, I mean, what what is at least a step in the right direction? I, I, I don't, and we have an hour, so you can't give the answer, right? Like that will probably take longer than an hour, um, but I would love to hear in your opinion, like what are some things, even as we as listeners, what can we do to get involved? What can we do to start really allowing ourselves to play a, a positive role in turning this around? There's so many things and like, it's so overwhelming. I know I've been, I was trying to teach this very idea to a group, of, a group of kids down in Southwest, right? And just to make it easier, I asked them, you know, pick a pick an issue in your community that you're really passionate about. It could be however small. And, you know, one of them said, and then eventually six of them said, they didn't care about anything. You know, what do you tell a, you know, that, that made me look bad. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you tell a class full of kids? You know, I was scared that the rest of them were like, yeah, actually, we don't care about it. You know what I'm saying? And, but it, it got real dark for a second. And what we ended up coming up with was that it's a lot to care about. It's so much to care about. Like, like circumstances are very bleak. And I think we're all overwhelmed because of the enormity of the problem. You can't talk about mass incarceration and prison abolition without talking about restructuring the economy, without talking about racism, without talking about all these things that are huge, right? And seemingly, you know, impossible to deal with like any one person thinking about what do I do with this but I think that we have to have those conversations and I think we have to begin to have those conversations especially with younger people and making it palatable for them that like this is not permanent and you have power and you have agency I think you know we kind of get grandfathered into our circumstances right our social circumstances and I think so many people who feel like they can't make a difference are looking at this enormous problem and feeling very overwhelmed, right? I think the best thing that you can teach a person to do to begin to act is to, to name your monster, to know that, you know, if it, things, things aren't just what they are. Like a lot of people have this attitude, like it is what it is, it's how they think about. And I think we have to undo that. I think that's the most important thing is to undo that. It is what it is, attitude, because, you know, if you do that, you, you know, you're, you're complicit in some, in some ways with, with how things are going. So I think if we can um, begin to have that conversation, if we can, we can begin to look at things systematically to understand the same neighborhoods with high rates of gun violence, are the same neighborhoods that are food deserts, are the same neighborhoods where the cops are riding by every two seconds, are the same neighborhoods where the trash don't get picked up when it's supposed to get picked up, are the same neighbor, you know what I'm saying, like to really look at it and to say like, these are structural issues. Um, and to hold your city council people, to hold your, your other elected officials, to hold your block captains, to hold everybody accountable, right? And to really and to really have those tough conversations and get people invested, right? Um, and that's a hard thing to do because everybody don't care. Um, but, but those conversations need to be had. A lot of people don't have spaces to have these conversations. Even you having this podcast to talk about like, some people don't talk about this ever. They just go, you know, some people are just trying to eat every day. There's no time to have a conversation about structural inequality and how that impacts my life today because I got to pay my rent. I got to feed my kids. I got to do whatever it is I have to do today. But I think if we can create more spaces to have these very honest conversations so people can feel supported, so that people can strategize, so that people can work together, um, I think that's one of the best things that anybody listening right now could do is to create spaces to talk about what's going on, create, even if it's block cleanups, even if it's like, just mentoring the kids on your street, talking to them, whatever, whatever small thing you can do, those things matter. And I've seen those things make major differences in people's lives. Um, and I think if, you know, we can make different, a difference in, you know, one person's life here and there, everybody's well-being is going to improve. 
that's just I, that might be naive, but I, I really, I really, I really think about it a lot, and I think about all the changes that have taken place over the last couple of years. However, you know, incomplete we feel like it is today. At some point, somebody had to do something, <laughs> you know, to even get us here. And I feel like the best thing that we could do to honor those folks is to continue to do the small things um, for ourselves now, for everybody who comes after us. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And the whole component around like the it, it is what it is mentality, yeah, that's apathetic. And apathy will never get you anything that you're trying to get, right? And yeah. so staying in that middle, you are complicit. You aren't actively doing anything against it, right? Like we talk about <laughs> that whole, um, the the racism spectrum, right? And like, if you aren't actively trying to get off of, of that moving sidewalk, like you're complicit at that point, you know, right. it's wrong, you're not doing anything okay well then you're cool with it um and also just the the normalization and desensitization towards violence specifically gun violence domestic violence i mean you know especially with our children um they see things at such a young age it's unbelievable uh you know i was working in the south bronx and i had a i was teaching eighth grade and the kids had come to school and like you see them playing with their phones and stuff and it's a regular everyday thing so i'm like yo put the phones away so talking and come to find out it's a picture of a kid who little 15 year old kid who had got shot in his head man and on the way to school kids had taken a picture of it and were just sharing it around um and I had a whole ass conversation with my kids I sat them down and I was like listen when you normalize this you allow it to continue to happen right like this is wrong no matter what I don't care where you from I don't care how old you are I don't care how many times you've seen it every time you see it is wrong and address it um and yeah man we've we've just become desensitized to it right like when you when you're subjected to this generation after generation it becomes normal um and so i love what you said about stepping up making spaces i'm always excited to have folks like yourself on here to talk that talk because people need to hear it i need to hear it right like this is a foot in my behind for me to keep my foot on the pedal to make sure that i continue to provide spaces for people to step up and lean in so um, I appreciate you and, and appreciate, again, all the work that you're doing, DJ because it's needed and, you know, you're also the right person to be doing it because you have that lived experience and you've seen it firsthand, like how detrimental it can be, just the injustice that's all around us. So, again, I appreciate you and, and the work that you're doing. Um, and I would love to hear, you know, where do you see yourself going next? So you're going to finish your PhD, you're going to be Dr. Tally, um, <laughs> and, and once that does happen and, and you've reach that peak of your your professional and personal career and evolutionary process what do you want to happen at the end of this what do you what do you see all of this what do you see it resulting in you know what i'd be lying if i said i knew um i've, I've spent a lot of time putting tools in the toolkit i've spent a lot of time getting to know people getting to know myself getting to know this work um and you know i think a lot of us probably think there's like we have grand plans we're like I'm gonna be a writer I'm gonna write books I'm gonna you know be at Starbucks when coffee shops were open I'm gonna write this book every day whatever it is and then the you know the more I got my hands dirty I realized like whatever I'm called to do um that's how I ended up working with Allison I you know I was I, I've worked in gun violence before I've worked with young people before I'm really interested in like young people's experiences navigating gun violence while also navigating criminalization as they age into adulthood, right? And just being labeled and things like that. Um, I fell into that because I felt I felt called to do that work. And I, I feel like if I live the rest of my life being called to certain things, um, 
I have a lot of interests. If sometimes, sometimes that's the right, if, if sometimes that's to teach young people, if sometimes that's to work with entering citizens, if sometimes it's, I feel like it could be a number of things. I, I just want to be able to use all the tools that I've accumulated and share that with people in whatever way, um, you know, a higher power privileges me to be able to do that work. So I might be doing a little bit of everything. So I kind of want to make documentaries, you know what I'm saying? I kind of want to be, do a little journalism with this public scholarship, I think. I think it's going to take me in a lot of places and I, and, I, and I want the people to lead me. I want the people that I care about the most and the people I do this work for to lead me in that work. And so there's a little bit of an unpredictability to it, but I think that that's exciting. I think that's what it's about. So yeah, you might see me on TV sometime. You might see my book on a shelf or Amazon or somewhere, hopefully a black bookstore instead. Um, but we'll see. I'll let y'all know when I get there. <laughs> I'll let you know where I'm at. I love it. And, and you know, I, Allison and I will be cheering you along the whole rest of the way um, <laughs> and always here to support and, and partner and, and work with you in any way that we can, um, because, you know, we share that sort of advo advocacy mentality and service mindset. So, you know, I'm sure that like we'll continue to cross paths as, as the work continues to happen. But I love that you you mentioned you're open to doing all of these different things because you have so many various interests. A lot of times we tend to want to like either allow ourselves to be pigeonholed or pigeonhole ourselves for others' comfort. Um, but in reality, when people are multifaceted, don't be afraid to chase those different aspects of yourself. Like that's who you are, explore them, get to know them, be responsible with them, right? Like you don't want to overdo it, but um, you know, chase your dreams. I love what you said about like, what are you being called to do? And that's a lot how I live my life too, is, you know, I'm called to do different things. And when it's time for me to serve, I step up. Um, and when I know it's that time, it's that time. So, you know, I'm excited to see for you what continues to happen when the book hits the shelves. We're going to cop. We're going to have a whole book party, <laughs> man. It'll be post-COVID. So we're going to be out here Philly getting and popping. Oh, I can't um, <laughs> That's going to be exciting. But that uh, Dijanae, so dope just, you know, to hear that you're open to whatever may happen in the future. Um, mm -hmm. But you just know whatever it is, it'll be with the people and for the people. Um, and yeah, man, keep that mentality and no doubt you'll end up going wherever it is that you're supposed to be. You're listening to the Third Lap Podcast with Mal Davis. Yeah. You know, Dijanae, you talked a little bit about growing up in New Haven and just that seeing the disparity in resources and opportunity and just seeing the dichotomy of how the people from the neighborhood were treated versus the students that were coming in. Um, so there's like an outside occupation, right? Mm -hmm. And so what is your motivation though? Why are you so deep into this? You know, you literally dedicated your life and your career to addressing these things that you saw at such a young age. But I mean, a lot of us have seen it, right? A lot of people have been victimized by these same circumstances and, and systems. Why have you gotten in and just stayed in and made sure that you continue to walk down this pathway? That's a really, really good, deep question. Um, and if I'm being completely honest with myself and with you all, I think some of it was and is still is survivor's guilt. And I hate to say that because I don't, I don't want to make it seem like, you know, some some part of that doesn't doesn't feel good to say. Um, because if I don't want to feel like or make it seem like I'm trying to make up for something, some advantage. I don't, I don't think I had an advantage. I think. I think everything comes down to circumstances. It might've been down to a moment. It might've been down to a day. It might've been down to a person um, in one conversation why my life 
went a little different than a lot of people who I grew up with and who I love and I care about. Um, to me, the randomness of that is so unfair. And it, I lose sleep over it. I lose sleep. It's, it's the fire in my belly that gets me up is knowing that it could have been really different. Um, and to feel like I didn't do anything special to earn the privilege for it to be different for me than it was for other people. And I don't, I don't want that to be the case. I'm, I'm thankful. I'm, 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 I'm appreciative, but I don't think that should be the case for our kids. I don't think any kids should feel like they're rolling the dice um, on what their life is. And, and it's structural, right? But when, when we talk about neighborhoods that are experiencing the most distress, the most social neglect, right? It's a, it's a dice roll for us to get out. Like who gets out? Who gets to, who gets to transcend this? It, it's, it's so random and it's, it's so unfair. Um, that's, that's really what keeps me going. I, I, it's a puzzle to me. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. And I really don't. And, and I lose sleep over it. And so if I could do anything in my life to make it so that it's not, I don't know what the percentage is, but whatever, whatever kids go to college who want to go to college, right? Whatever kids want a living wage, get a living wage, whatever kids want, you know, whatever they want for their life, that it's not a gamble. It's not, you know, it feels hunger gamey to me. Like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. I don't, I, it just really, it makes me sick. And I don't think it's fair that, that they we preach this thing in this country about putting yourself up by your bootstraps and anything is possible. And it's not, that's not, that's not what it is for us. Um, it's not what it is for so many people. You could dream all you want. You can't dream your way out of poverty here when it's so intentional and you see it. A lot of it is, is so intentionally constructed so that people cannot have their, their, their needs met. Um, yeah, sorry if that was like long-winded, but like that, that really, that's really how I feel a lot of, oh. a lot of days. No apologies necessary at all. That it, that hit home with me a hundred percent around like the survivor's guilt. You know, I, I tried to throw my life away behind it because you know I was chilling with people and I know plenty of folks that are in prison or have gone to prison or are dead because of the streets. And you know, for me to ultimately be able to like at some point get my life back on track and you know be where I am now, it was like. It was tough because, you know, like you said, it's a, a roll of the dice and we was in the suburbs and we almost ain't get away. Right. And so come on, man. You know, you you tell yourself that when you move your children to the burbs and, and out of the hood and now nah, if you have a, a, a young black boy or girl or or um, non-binary child in this world, um, especially in the United States, every system out here is against them. Um, it doesn't really matter where they are, you know, inner city, suburbs, rural. It, it This is just uh this is an ongoing thing that affects us everywhere we go. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I completely relate to to what you said and that roll of the dice, like it can't be this randomized. Um, and, you know, the same thing keeping you up is what keeps me up too. So I feel like we're not the only people losing sleep over this. And, and I'm excited because I know so many people that have passion for this in education and in the prison um, reform campaign and uh, abolishing the police, like all of these different components that really before the pandemic, you know, I think a lot of laymen would have thought there was no correlation or connection. All of a sudden we see education, police, prison, um, mm -hmm. food desert and access to, to uh, stable, reliable food. Like they're all interconnected and systems that were put in place housing to keep us from being able to access the things that we need. So yeah, man, let's keep kicking these doors down. Let's keep busting these systems up and one day it'll fall, right? It and, you know, to. 
it needs to. And and I don't and just to add to that, like this gun violence thing, me, me doing this gun violence fellowship at this time, like starting in 2019 and seeing, you know, one of the highest yeah. gun homicide years since the early 90s in yeah. Philly, right? Like we're talking like right around the height of the, the crack epidemic. Yeah. And seeing numbers that are like, you know, and almost five, 500 yeah. homicides in Philly last year. To say, <laughs> to say that the pandemic, to say that crime is not related to structure, to say that crime is not related to poverty and, you know, having your basic needs met. For last year <laughs> to, to be what it was, for anyone to think that it was a coincidence at the same year that we have this pandemic and that schools are closed and, you know, mentoring programs are shut down and community centers are closed and people were hoarding groceries for a little bit last year and toilet paper and you know all infrastructure fell apart and gun violence went up you know what i'm saying like infrastructure fell apart mental health crises went up people were isolated like all these things are connected um and we need to start treating them like they're connected we have to start treating like you know our crime rate relies in part on how well our education system functions, how well we serve these kids. It relies on having public spaces where people can get the things that they need. Um, yeah, and if that doesn't happen, then nobody learned a lesson at all in the pandemic. We literally, <laughs> like literally, I if I can't, there was no better, better way of illustrating, not to say that like I wish the pandemic on us, but there was no better way to illustrate how, how honestly shitty our institutions are. No until we were put into a crisis where we yeah. failed a lot of people, we continue to fail a lot of people, right. especially people who were already <laughs> being failed before and underserved before. Yeah. So yeah, I agree yeah. 100%. It's, the, it's this mentality that was instilled in me a while ago, but it basically is like apply pressure to everything, like pressure test everything, right? Um, and the pandemic applied pressure to all of our systems and every system failed. So every first of all, one. <laughs> we, we should be extremely concerned because we've been electing people and, and they've been getting public dollars to do X, Y, and Z. And clearly none of that has been done. Um, there were no safeguards in place for us, right? Like we, we had the, we had the bag for what, $1,200. And some people didn't even get that. They wanted to give us $800 the next go around, even though people getting evicted, they didn't stop evictions. The whole system broke down and so you know i'm cautiously optimistic that when we come out of this pandemic that people will continue the work that's being done but part of me is scared when you could go back to miami beach and you don't have to wear a mask and you could get it popping on instagram again like are people going to be this diligent about equity right um when you could when 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 the sun is shining and you could run around and do your thing again and be on tinder dating and all that you know you don't have to worry no more um, you know, I wonder, does the passion dissipate? I hope not, because, you know, we need to keep this energy going. Um, this, the, the work is happening and the movement is happening. Um, and I hate to see it undone. But uh, yeah, DJ, I know you won't stop. So I know that you're going, I know you'll still be out here putting the work in, man. And, I, and I'm just really happy to see it. And I think so, a lot of people are still going to do it. I really do believe that. I, I do, do too. I think, I, I think you can't, you know, you don't forget pain like that. Right. You don't, you don't forget you know, that fear that we all felt and that distress. Right. And I think yeah. a lot of places where institutions failed, communities showed up for mm. one another. Kyle like, the Conductor, oh, shout outs Kyle, man. Right. <laughs> Showing up with them royal giveaways and, and all of that. Like, yes, 100% the people showed up and showed out. 
for sure. Yeah. And we and and we learned yeah. the valuable lesson we all we got and we all we need in the end of the day for real. Because when the systems broke down, it was the people that held the people down, man. And that I hope that we don't ever forget that moment in time and moment in like our uh, current history. Yeah, hundred percent. And so Dijanae. Um, we're getting to the tail end of the podcast. I really appreciate you and appreciate your time. You know, it was great learning about where you're from, repping New Haven, um, but also mm -hmm. talking about the the lessons that you you gained from that experience, your whole career in criminal justice and in the work that you've been doing, just trying to first understand the monster, right? Like you said, name the monster and then address the components of it that are uh, not equitable. And again, I'm just excited to see where this all heads in the documentaries and the books. And I'm sure that the, the TED talk that's coming down the road, um, you know what I mean? We gonna, I'm here for it all because you need that platform because you've studied this, you understand it in just a, a really amazing way. Um, and you're trying to change it to better people's lives. And that's what we need out here in these streets are folks really trying to turn this around and improve the outcomes for our children and for just our communities. Um, and so you talk to us about your motivation too, right? And, and, and what keeps you pushing and what keeps you hungry. So we're at the component of the show, which is called the motivational thoughts for the people, two to three minutes, just for you to like stamp this episode. What do you want people to walk away with at the end of this? If they say, hey, listen, if I remember one thing that these are two things that she told me, what would you want them to walk away with remembering? I think I would want people to walk away with the same thing that I try to remind myself every day whether it's to get up and do this work whether it's to just get up and be great at whatever it is grocery shopping like being a dog mom whatever it is like I remind myself daily that I however this world beats me up and makes me sad and disappoints me that I stand on the shoulders of giants who have stared down bigger mountains than me um with less resources without Beyonce's internet like <laughs> you know, in like the best way that I could honor them and honor myself is, is to just keep that energy. And, you know, it, it thinking of thinking that, keeping that in my spirit allows me to stand up for myself, to stand up for people who I care about, to stand up for communities that I care about. I'm not scared of anything when I remind myself of that. And I can do anything when I remind myself of that. I will, if, if you would have asked me five years ago, whether I'd be sitting here talking to you on this podcast, because, you know, because I knew, you know, your wife and I was doing this work and I had moved to, I wouldn't have believed you. I would have been like, all right, <laughs> just like, there's no way, there's no way you're going to tell me I was going to be getting a PhD. There's no way you're going to be telling me I was going to be living on my own in Philly. Um, there's no way you were going to tell me that I was going to have the knowledge that I have now and the understanding that I have now of the world. And so, when I think about everyone who came before me, who made this possible, people that I know, people that I don't, um, that makes me proud and that, that makes me work hard and it makes me feel confident. And I think that everyone should try to carry that spirit with them every day and to remind yourself that you're gonna have bad days and you're gonna have good days. And sometimes, some days you're gonna be indifferent. Some days you're not gonna wanna do nothing. Some days you're not gonna care about no social justice cause cause you're just tired, um, but to keep going and to keep pushing. And that, that's, that's, that's really it. That's, that's what we have to do. And the more that you, I guess, yeah, no, just think about people you love. Think about the, the world you want to live in. Think about the life that you want people who you care about to have, the kind of world you want to leave them with. Um, at least that's what I do. Um, and that's really all I got. I don't know. I'm probably having an indifferent day myself. So this is me kind of talking me up, talking me out of my phone. But 
yeah, just you stand on the shoulders of giants. We're giants. And someone's gonna stand on our shoulders one day and you wanna grow as tall as you can and give them that leg up so they can continue on. And I think that's the most beautiful thing we could do for one another. Um, and for the people that come before, uh, have come before us and come after us. So, yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, I was going to say, you you are a giant and, you know, you're going to have folks standing on your shoulders and you're going to be uplifting the voices of people who may not had an opportunity, right? Like when we talk about the random randomization of it all, um, I, I just really hope that we can continue this work. Uh, but I love what you said about just understanding who, who came before you and the work that was done with less resources. It was a moment when I was, uh, at, I gotta go back. I haven't been in weeks cause Saturdays are now like the toughest day for me. But anyway, doing a Royal giveaway with Kyle. And it was a moment where like setting up the tables, putting the food out. And I'm like huge in the Black Panther party. Like that, that is a party that I've studied inside and out. And it was just a moment where I just was like, yo, this had to be how it felt back in the sixties right? Like in these community centers, just providing for your own people and just the pride that you feel for serving your community. And like that feeling will stay with me for the rest of my life, man. Um, because, you know, that that is the feeling that I want to be able to have every single day with every moment that I have, because like, that's the legacy I want to leave is, you know, we, we created a pathway for people to go out here and, and take the world by the horns, yo. Um, and like kids that look like us are always given that opportunity. Like you said, it's a roll of the dice. Um, I'm trying to stop this dice game, man. This ain't a casino. We're not gambling. So, you know, let's let's straighten up these odds and, and really get to this work. Um, and so, Dijanae, we're, we're here at the end, another like two or three minutes. Um, what are some books that you've read? So we have the Third Lap Podcast Book Club. So what are some books that you've read or some books that you would suggest that people should dig into if they want to understand criminal justice or really motivation, anything that you want to share. And by the way, I heard about the Beyonce's internet. So I guess the Beehive then stole the internet from Al Gore. I wasn't aware, um, but I should have I should have known. I should have known. Uh, but it's Beyonce's now, so I'm gonna go ahead with it. I just wanted to say, I called it. <laughs> but yeah, what is Beyonce's some... internet? It might be somebody else's tomorrow, but today it will be Beyonce's. So Listen, man, as powerful as she is, it'll stay hers for a long time, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, what are some books that you would suggest people check out? All right. So given the topics of today, um, one of the books that I want to tell y'all about is called Until We Reckon. Um, it's by a woman named Danielle Sered, who, who has a program in New York called Common Justice. And what this program does is it um, deals with violent offenders um, through a restorative justice framework as opposed to incarceration, right? And so I'm talking like violent offenses. Instead of sending those folks um, to prison, it's like I think an 18-month process where they work directly with the person that they harmed. Um, both the victim and the perpetrator opt into this. And it's a long, very intentional process. And I, and I, I think the reason why I want y'all to tap into this is because the way that this book allowed me to understand prison as the only option is because we've made it the only option and that there are other ways of dealing with violence. It's like, she describes it as like, if you're in the middle of the desert and there's a hot dog stand, you eating a hot dog, <laughs> you eating a hot dog and that's it. But if you have, you know, a pizza stand, a hamburger stand, you might think that you might be able to envision something different for yourself. 
if there were other options there. So this program not only allows for a more intentional process within a, with a violent offender, where they're actually having to face a person that they harmed as opposed to a system, right? And then be, you know, in some ways, oppress themselves and like, you know, be worse off for it. Um, it also centers the victim. I think one thing we forget about the criminal justice system, we're so worried about, and rightfully so, but we're so worried about what it does to the people who come through it that we forget about the folks who were harmed on the other end of it. So people who are victims of crimes, who don't get to participate in the process, who the police don't communicate with, who the courts don't really allow um, to make decisions about like, well, what would restore you? Like this thing happened, instead of the state saying, okay, seven to 10 years, 15 to 20, whatever it is, like, what does this person need? What would be required to help them heal? And so if we're talking about communities where a lot of crime happens, it's not, it's a lot of victims and there's a lot of perpetrators in the same space. And if you think about a framework where we're dealing very intentionally with the perpetrator and the victim, that's healing for everybody. And I just think the book does a really beautiful job of illustrating how that works and why it might be favorable, or for me is favorable um, to prison. So that one's Until We Reckon by Danielle Sered. I just wanted to explain that to give you guys like a little guiding hope um, based on the conversation we had about prison today. Um, the second one, I'm going to have to give it to, let me think, Eddie Glau Jr. Um, he's a professor at Princeton, but he has a book called Begin Again, uh, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Um, that's a good book. I love James Baldwin. I refer to him as Uncle James. Um, he, he, he knew what was going on well before we did. There's things that James said, wrote, that seems like he said it yesterday and we just ain't been listening. And so I think any opportunity we have to dig back and work that, you know, one of our own's already done because certain folk ain't listening <laughs> and like the problems remain the same. I love that. I love, I love that we have a current scholar now who's, who's bringing back, bringing that work back up. Um, so I highly recommend that book. And the last one I'm gonna recommend just because I think it's always good to, to have fun. I think no matter how difficult the work is or how big the task is that we should always take time to, to enjoy art, to enjoy reading um, for, for leisure. Like it doesn't always have to be work. So there's a, a book of short stories written by a black woman. And the book is called How Long Till Black Future Month. And it's a book of shorts. If you like sci-fi, if you like fantasy, if you're into like those sorts of stories, they're very Afrocentric, <laughs> like sci-fi fantasy stories. And it's by N.K. Jemison. How Long Till Black Future Month, very creative. They, I'm talking like really good short stories. Like you could read one before bed every night. They're so creative. You could see it. She writes so well. And I thought I knew, I thought I knew sci-fi fantasy until I read this. And I'm like, she took it somewhere else. Like she, she took some of these stories in places I, I would never have imagined. Um, some of these stories. So I highly recommend that. It's one of my favorite, 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 favorite um, fiction books. So pick that up at your local Black bookstore. Don't order it on Amazon um, if, you, if you don't have to. <laughs> so those are my three recommendations. Um, and by all means, if anybody wants to chit chat about it, um, I'm sure Malcolm will drop my handle or something and I'll be free to respond to anybody if you want to I don't know, fangirl over the book or talk about prison and I don't know, whatever you want to do, I'm, I'm available. I'm a nerd. I'll geek out with you. So that's the perfect transition because I was going to ask you, what's your social media? So if people do want to connect with you to geek out, to talk more about any really of the topics that you've mentioned today, where can folks find you? 
So I just got a Twitter. That's cool. I'm I'm on the children's Twitter. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to be trying to be cool. Learn how to do that stuff. So I'm at Dijonay at D-I-J-O-N-E-E underscore underscore on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, you'll probably get some more like scholarly tweets from me trying to build my brand or whatever they do in academia these days. Um, but also on Instagram, I'm a joke. If you want to laugh or like get book recs, I take pictures of every book I'm reading and I'm a plant mom. I'm a dog mom. I'm cool. I do community work. All the things are going to be up there. Um, so yeah, if you want to, if you want to rap with me, you want to talk, you want to volunteer, you want to just learn, you want to come teach a class, you want to meet my students, whatever it is, I'm really open to everything. So you'll find me on both of those and I'm really accessible. Awesome. Listen, we got to talk about a class, man. You know, I'm always trying to connect with the kids. I'm always trying to come in and leverage what I've learned in regards to like job seeking, job hunting, just like how to decode professionalism in a way to make it work for you. So um, oh, if you ever want to talk that. about that, yeah, hit me Let up. Let me get we can you a contract. Talk. Let me write this down. <laughs> Listen, it's recorded, man. So, you know, I can't, I'm not going to edit it out. I'm a man of my word. So, <laughs> Allison, if you tell Allison I said it, she'll hold me accountable. I can't. No, I got you. So, but no, all seriousness, you know, we can definitely connect and talk about that because um, I'm always trying to pay that forward because that's like siphoned information that they've held from us for so long to keep us from being able to move forward as professionals. So um, anything I could do to help, I'm always here. Um, and definitely yeah. going to post your social media um, the day that the episode comes out so people can connect with you okay. along with uh, the books that you suggested. So yeah, and until we reckon, that's that sounds like a good one. You you sold me on it, so I'm gonna go find it and get the job done. Cause I gotta check that one out. Um, she does a Stanley Fellow as well. Nice. Okay. The awesome. Author. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and so, Dijanae, we're at the end again. I yeah. appreciate you. You know, we made our way through it. You said that this was a <laughs> this was a so so day, but you gave me a lot of effort on here, man, and I appreciate you. So you know, I thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Um, I learned so much from you and, and again, just excited to continue to learn from you and, and to serve with you in this work and in these different capacities as the future unfolds for us. Um, and so is there any last things that you wanted to share before we log out? Ooh, it's anything I want to share. I don't know. Go watch Lovecraft Country, y'all. Lit. I watched Lovecraft Country. Yeah, me and Allison, we binge watched that. Joint. I was Allison. late. I just watched it. Yeah. We, yeah. If y'all see me on Twitter or Instagram, y'all got to send me all the shows because I was like a smooth six months late watching yeah. Lovecraft Country. Yo, be honest, I'm late to everything. Like, I'm not the <laughs> dude watching it when it comes out. Like, I might never, I might watch Power 10 years from now, yo. We'll see what happens. Maybe. Um, I doubt it. I, <laughs> I, I haven't watched too, it. Yeah. I'm one of them people. I've not seen that. I ain't seen Chris oh, Anatomy. I ain't seen How to Get Away with Murder. I'm awful. Scandal, I'm, none of it. None of those four of us. Now they're going to they gonna be in my mentions like, you have not seen. But mm -hmm. if y'all got some recommendations that aren't those things, send them way i would appreciate that <laughs> do you well. watch do you watch always sunny in philadelphia i don't that's a suggestion i suggest that all the time you got to kind of get over the fact that like they're they're poor white trash um mm. because like philly has very interesting race relations and like that demographic of philadelphians uh is an interesting group of folks 
but mm-hmm. that show is funny um and is it's it? well written yeah it's funny like i got allison into it i don't know how i got her in the south part too um so really yeah, i got i'm gonna picture allison watching south park <laughs> yo <laughs> you got me into the office in fraser i got her in the south park and always sunny and like neither of us thought that this day would happen but we watched these shows like back to back and it's a good old time um, so I feel like if Allison could like South Park and, and Always Sunny, I, I feel like you could dig into those. Um, <laughs> I'll try but... to get into it. I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> Just let me know. Give it a try and we'll see what happens. Um, but again, Dijanae, I really appreciate your time today. Um, I hope you have a good rest of your evening. This is Mal Thank Davis you. signing out with a Third Lap Podcast. Each one, teach one, we all learn together. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Third Lap Podcast. This is your host, Mal Davis. Please visit thethirdlappodcast.com for more information about the podcast, about our guests, and also to see our reading list. You can find us at The Third Lap Podcast on LinkedIn and Facebook, at Third Lap on Twitter, and at Third underscore Lap underscore podcast on Instagram. If you know anyone that would be great to be featured on this show, please reach out to our host, Mal Davis. He's always looking for interesting people to learn more about them and to talk about their pathway. Thank you so much again. Have a good one.